Um, we've been uh, talking through a series of passages in Scripture that I've decided to call hard things. And in past weeks, we've talked about passages that come under direct criticism from people who may not believe. That often comes with people attacking a passage and, by extension, the Bible as a whole. And, you know, as, as they go, there's it brings in an attack on any belief in God or any belief in Christianity. This passage uh, today comes under a different kind of criticism and one that's perhaps more dangerous, and that is simply ignoring it <laughs> completely in thought and, and in practice. Um, it's really fascinating. If, if you look at the great religions of the, of the world, many of them share a lot of, of common ethical ground. They really do. Uh, so there are rules about killing, murder is bad, theft is bad. <laughs> you know, uh, Almost everybody says this. There, there's a sense of promoting mercy to the poor and being generous to people who are in need. Uh, most will have rules around caring for your family, um, speaking with honesty and integrity. And then Jesus uh, drops a bomb on us here, and he presents a radical ethic of love. And this one simply does not exist in other places. And to be fair, it doesn't really exist in our culture. If you're an enemy, we have a way of approaching that in, in our current in our current culture, and it's to attack, to discredit, to cancel, to boycott, to get others on board, uh, to take away careers and opportunity. And right now, it's incredibly aggressive. It's just very um, feral <laughs> at the moment. And it's not so very different from the first century. The idea is to love your friends and hate your enemies <laughs> and, you know, and let, the, let the chips fall where they may. But Jesus here is giving us another path. It's unique to Christianity. I'm not finding it anywhere else, and it's amazing. And it's countercultural. <laughs> it's a, it's good. It's loving. And so, if we can, let's consider joining the rebellion and taking a swing at the evil empire, in in perhaps a different way. So, the the first question that we've come to uh, the text with four questions of, you know, are we reading in good faith? Are there unusual things we should take notice of? Can we recreate the passage? And what what does this mean for us? So, the first reading in good faith. I think this passage is really going to lead us against the current of culture. Um, so in reading in good faith, I'm going to make this assumption. The assumption is this. The writers of the Gospels and Jesus himself and his teaching, um, they weren't stupid. <laughs> so, so there may just be something like, this just seems on its face, it just seems like, I don't know about that one. But like, let's just assume that there's actually something here. Let's sit with it a bit and see if there's, there's something that's really helpful for us as we go. So some unusual things about the passage that we should take notice of. And, and I apologize. I actually want to add a verse to this. Um, so right before this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 38, uh, Jesus says this is the turn the other cheek passage. He says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then he goes into the love your, love your enemies. And I want to notice uh, three things about turning our other cheek and then we get into the, the main passage. Um, so the first that the first thing is this when we talk about turning the other cheek the cheek in terms of um, martial arts or physical combat or warfare the cheek is really not the primary point of attack if you want to hurt someone <laughs> so it's a, that's more it's eyes nose throat it's the solar plexus it's you know it's these these things and we can go down the list if you're keeping score at home but the cheek is really not the most vulnerable part of the body so the second thing is uh, slapping. <laughs> so again, slapping is it's it that's a, it's just a funny word. Slapping. If you were make a good clown name, Slappy the Clown. Uh, but as a means of violence, it's really not very effective. Uh, so things that I have not heard <laughs> recently, 
Uh, world champion fighter Bob has spent years perfecting his Brazilian slapping techniques. Or We just don't hear many stories about the, the Kung Fu Shaolin slapping monks walking the earth and resisting justice by slapping evildoers. You know? Sla slapping is just not, it's not a, a way of actually hurting someone. The, the point is this. A slap on the cheek is an insult, right? It's not necessarily trying to kill someone or actually injure someone. This is an assault on the honor. It's an assault on our ego. It's an assault on you know, our, our well-being in terms of how we think about ourselves, not so much a, an attack on physical safety. So the third thing about uh, the turning the other cheek is that it's an unusual response. Uh, one, one part of me is saying, wow, that if you, that's an amazing example of love. If you can actually do it, that would take a lot of courage to, to do that and to say, okay, and then to, turn the, to actually turn the other cheek would be, that would be quite, quite a thing. Uh, and another part of me is saying, does this mean we get to be floor mat doormats forever? <laughs> you know, it's like, do we just, do, you know, something bad happens to us, we just go, okay, give me some, can I have some more, please? It's like, it's, and I'm not sure that's what Jesus is saying here. So we get abused, do we let people just abuse us again forever and just keep, 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 keep going? There's another option. And the other option is this, is that when you turn the other cheek, something, something has happened to you where you've been mistreated or you've actually been attacked in some way, you actually change the position of abuse. So you stop the situation as it is and you present another situation, right? And, and someone who could just slap you on the cheek and you turn it and it kind of almost dare them to do it again, it, it would take, it would be pretty brazen. I think, I think a lot of people would pause. I, I would pause. If I just lashed out at somebody and they, and they didn't lash back out at me in kind, but they just stopped and very calmly said, do you want to try that again? <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I might have, it's possible that I could have a different response. It's almost, there's a bit of a reset there where you literally take away the position of abuse and you change the position of the relationship and put it in another position. And, and we'll talk about that, it, it, give you a practical example in just a minute. But, but let me start here. What I believe with all my heart that Jesus is saying here is not to uh, stay in an abusive situation or in a position of no kidding assault. If something is very bad has happened, don't just stay there. Get get out of that situation and let me start there. If there's a crime, if there's a no kidding assault, don't stick around for more assault. Don't. That's not what Jesus is saying here. The most loving thing you can do, and I, and I mean this, honestly, the most loving thing you can do if something serious has happened is call the police. Deal with that appropriately. I, I'm entirely serious. If someone has lost self-control to the point of actively harming someone um, or someone close to us by extension they're actually they're not just harming the other person they're actually harming their own soul so Boethius talks about this in the Constellation of Philosophy and the most loving thing we can do is to stop them to perhaps put them in prison you know, to to actually meet out a societal level of appropriate punishment and, and he's right about that it's not loving to let someone continue to commit crimes to harm others to and, and by extension harm themselves any more than it would you know if someone had a knife and they're just cutting their arm they're cutting their arm you wouldn't you would literally physically stop them doing that if you could and it's a it's a similar sort of thing the most loving thing we can do is actually stop someone from doing this kind of thing all right so in verse 45 and 48 Jesus talks about us as children of God. He said, be, we can be sons of the Father, that the Father leads us to this way. We should be perfect like God is perfect, that we're his children and that we have, this has meaning for us as we go. And also in, in verses 45 and 48, when he ties us to God as children, he also ties the activity of loving our enemies 
to God's activity. He says that God sends good, he sends sunshine and good things to the just and also to the unjust. He sends rain to people who deserve it and people who don't deserve it. And, and that when we can extend the range of our ethical connection and even our love, not just to our friends, but also to our enemies, we are actually participating in the nature of God. We're participating in the divine. Okay, so so if we if we pull out a couple of things, so the, the third question is this, can we form a coherent narrative that is consistent with scripture as a whole with this business of love our enemies, and we can. And I, I wanna bring in a very famous passage from Micah. It's in Micah chapter six, verse eight. It's, it's the one where, you know, what does God expect from us but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. It's this very famous passage. But there's something really interesting about that that I think applies uh, to our verses in Matthew. So the, the, there are two sets of dual ideas. There are two balancing principles in, in Micah that I think do apply. So the first is this. There's the idea of, there's the duality of justice and kindness. And justice and kindness really aren't the same thing. Justice is justice. Kindness is, is often much more merciful. But, but Mike is giving us both of those things at the same time, to love justice, but also to do kindness, to, to, to embrace both of these ideas at the same time. And there, there's an idea and a tension there. It's the tough and the tender. It's the courageous and the sweet. It's justice and kindness. And, and this kind of thing, Chesterton talks about the, the paradoxical nature of, of Christianity and how Christian truth often goes this direction. And, and it's really, really interesting. So the idea is call the revolution, but also turn the other cheek. And somehow we, we do these things at the same time. Um, and this is the wonderful paradox that leads us to a deeper truth that we find so often in the gospel. It really is amazing. So in ourselves, when we, when we look at this kind of thing, justice and kindness, we often, like, oh, let me say that, I often will not get it right. So when I, when I face injustice, as an example, I, I have, there are basically two responses to that. One response is very passive. So I'll just take it and, you know, and just suffer, you know. And, and, and basically the idea is, is I get slapped on the cheek, and so I just keep the same cheek there and just go, oh, woe is me, and get slapped on the cheek again, you know, and I just keep it there and I get slapped again. And, and I just, I don't complain, I don't speak up, I just take it. And sometimes it's more painful for me to change the status quo, to confront, to to say something like, stop slapping me, you know, like, you know cut it out, this is, this is unjust, this is a mistreatment. It's, it's more painful to change the status quo and to challenge even abuse than it is to confront. That continuity over discontinuity is so important that we'll even endure a lot of abuse um, instead of losing something that's important. It's like, well, if I speak up, I'll lose the relationship or I'll lose the job or I'll lose something that I don't wanna lose. And so we'll actually take a surprising amount of abuse, but there's a passive nature to this that is not healthy. The other response is, is kind of the opposite, it's the active more vindictive response, right? Someone slaps us on the cheek, and so we slap them back. You know, we 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 just respond in kind. You know, we hit their cheek, and we, you know, it's the empire cheeks back. We we just respond, and we we, we lash out. We take revenge, um, and that's also not the best way to go. Or we do a sophisticated combination, and this is probably more more my my speed, and to tell you more about me, <laughs> you may want to know. But we take it, we take it, we take it, we take it. There might be something that's going on that's not quite right. We take it, we take it. And then we've had it, and we blow up, and we just have a, a response that's not healthy because we've been dealing with this for 
six months or eighteen months that have never have never spoken up, and we blow up and, and have a have a bad response. We go from passive to aggressive very, very quickly, and and the way we deal with these kind of things is partly temperament. It's partly the model we got from our parents. It's partly some of the decisions we've made along the way. Um, but we we can deal with this in ways that are often not healthy by just being passive or being overly aggressive in terms of the, the turn the other cheek response. Um, there, there's one other thing that I, I hesitate to talk about, but I think it's important. Um, and that's uh, when sometimes we'll do both at once, right? Where there's this passive response where on the outside we don't respond necessarily. Um, and this is probably the most pathological. This is probably the most dangerous. Uh, but on the inside, we're burning with rage, <laughs> right? Where we're just, we're like, we light the fuse and it's going. Um, and and this, is, this is, I think, where we get some of the psychology of the mass shootings that we see. You know, the, the kid in Atlanta, the, the guy in, in, in Colorado, some of the school shootings. It's, it's on the outside. I, I mean, what, what do we hear when you get the interviews later? It's like the neighbors or... or people who were close to them, it's like, wow, they were really quiet. They really didn't say anything. Yeah, they were really, on the outside, they never really confronted the injustice or the mistreatment they were facing in any any healthy way. But on the inside, they're burning with rage. They're really, really angry. And they that that tension just builds to a point where it, it expresses itself in very, very bad ways. The Christian response, and I think what Jesus is leading us to, is it's actually the, the, the polar opposite of that. It's to be very active on the outside. It's very active on the outside, but completely at peace on the inside, right? To find that way of, of going about this. It's forgiving, it's warm, it's active for justice where we can lovingly confront, but it's also embracing the, the truth of where God wants us to go. And, and if you follow scripture, this, this, is, this is consistent. Um, Jesus says, if you have something against your brother, go talk to them. And like you know, and, and and if that goes well, you've won your brother back. If they if they just don't listen to you, bring in an interested third party. But he's not saying wait eighteen months and then bring in an interested third party. He actually wants you to do that almost immediately. Go talk to people. Bring in some people to mediate. If that doesn't work, bring it to the elders of the church. You know, and have some people who are perhaps smarter, wiser, more spiritual than, than you might be to to kind of weigh in on the situation. And they might have something good to say. Um, and and he even says. At one point, Jesus says, if you're at the altar and you're worshiping and you bring your gift to the altar, you bring a tithe, you bring an offering, and you think, oh, I have something against my brother, he actually says, leave your gift at the offer and go be reconciled to your brother. That this this idea of love and this idea of response is actually so important. It actually is more important than worship. It actually is, is a higher priority than worship. Don't let it sit for two and a half years. Don't let it sit for six months. Don't let it sit for some extended period of time, but but go deal with it now. Because if you don't, it can be very destructive and very unhealthy. So don't just leave the cheek, don't just get slapped for 18 months and then blow up. Turn the other cheek and do it immediately. Because you take away the position of abuse and you put the relationship in another position. So someone that I would consider a friend, they actually heard this once, they actually overheard a phone call. and. And I'm not sure this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about, but it's a really interesting example, and I, and I wish we want to go through it as something to consider. So it, it was a girl in her 20s, uh, it was probably 22, 23. She was actually on a phone call with her dad, and her dad was really verbally aggressive and really just kind of being mean, to be honest. So the girl says, the girl says this. She says, Dad, I love you, but I've told you 
that I'm not going to allow you to talk to me in that way. I'm not going to allow you to talk to me in that way. I'm not going to allow you to talk to mom in that way in my presence. I care for you, but I'm not going to participate in this. And I'm actually going to hang up now, even if you're in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> so she's, she's really drawing, drawing a very courageous boundary. Uh, and she says, I want a good relationship with you, but we can't have it in this way. If you're willing to change, I'm, I'm with you. And I will call you back later. I care for you deeply. Click. <laughs> you know, so, so it's just this, this incredible phone call. It's like it's just very, very unusual interaction for, for what we normally see. So, so what would be the normal, natural response if, if we're actually on this call? Well, one, is it's the passive response, right? Well, we just take it. We hold the, chill, the cheek still for further slapping. You know, he's my dad after all. You know, it's like, well, you know, we just, we just do this. Um, the other approach, which can be very destructive, is to light him on fire, <laughs> you know, to, to say, to say, how dare you? I hate you. I'm telling mom to leave you. I'm telling, you know, I'm taking the dog. I never want to see you again. You'll die all alone. There's a string of expletives and then, then the click. Um, but what she does instead is really, really interesting. She turns the other cheek. She really does. She turns the other cheek. She puts the relationship on another footing. She directly calls out the injustice of the situation in a way that was clear, it's direct, it's right, but at the same time, she doesn't withdraw. She doesn't respond in kind with, with anger and with just a lashing out. She does it in a healthy way. And, and honestly, this kind of thing, if we can square this circle, is, is the best chance we have of restoring a relationship to health when it's gone off the rails. She's giving him a legitimate chance. She's getting, giving him a chance to push, push pause and push reset. And she's presenting the other cheek. And hopefully the dad can, you know, cut it out and kiss her on the cheek instead of slapping her again. <laughs> you know, so, so hopefully he can, he can come to this and move forward in a better way instead of more slapping and continuing with an angry cycle of, you know, he slaps her and she slaps him back and they just keep going on with no resolution. But healthy relationships, really healthy relationships, have to be on a footing of justice and also of kindness. And so in, in turning the other cheek and, and as a way of loving our enemies, there's a spirit in the followers of Jesus that is different. So we can express concern for justice and real concern for justice, and we can actually talk to that very directly. But there's no concern for our image. There's no concern for saving face. There's very little concern for our own ego. And also, if we can center in this way and really get it, there's no vindictiveness or spite. There's no rancor or cynicism. Um, there can be anger, but it doesn't express itself in a way that's destructive. And so this is a person who, who, who really gets this idea. It's a person who can speak up for justice when it's needed, and they can throw some real fire. If, if you read the abolitionists, uh, uh, slavery, the, the Presbyterians and Sojourner Truth, the, the, these guys, you know, Harriet Tubman, they're throwing some real fire at the idea of slavery but they're doing that in a way, it, there's not a personal venom attached to it that, that's really devaluing people, even people who are participating in something that's not right. And so we can throw some real fire related to social issues, but in the heart of the gospel, we can do that without the personal attack and the personal venom that often gets attached. And, and this is the complete and total opposite of how the human heart normally works. It, it's, it's a balance of justice and kindness when we understand this idea of love your enemies. So the second, the second balance in in uh, the passage in Micah is you know, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before our God. So uh, on the first, the first balance is justice and kindness. The second balance in the, in this verse is it's kind of the inward outward idea. 
So the outward is justice and kindness. Those are things that express outwardly. You know, we do justice. We we express kindness. I'm not just thinking kindly of you in my heart. I actually express the kindness to you in some way. And But then there's also the walk humbly before our God, and that's more of an internal positioning. So things like justice and kindness, they're an external expression. Walking humbly is more of an internal expression. The power for both of these comes from our identity in Christ. And this is where the, the tying of us to children, to being children of God, to being sons of the Father in verses 45 and 48 becomes really important. That we can be merciful as God is merciful, that we can approach justice as God approaches justice and not as we approach justice. That it's the nature of God to be good to wicked and ungrateful people, and we can participate that as well. And then we remember that in Romans chapter 5, Paul says this to us, that God loved us, that he cared for us, that he actually sent his son to die for us while we were his enemies, that Christ died for us while we were enemies of God. And then something amazing happens. He actually adopts us. He draws us into his family. And it's an alarming thought that we're actually an adopted enemy. We're an adopted enemy. So, and again, let me talk about myself. It, the idea that I've been an enemy of God is something that it's hard for me to resonate with. I go, I've never really been, I've never hated God or gone on some weird, you know, <laughs> I've never gone on the warpath against, you know, God or religion in any in any, in any real way. I struggle with that idea if when, when you say, when, to take it seriously, that I, I've been an enemy of God. I've just never really hated God in that sort of way. And so it, it feels like an odd notion. But then, and... I'll just apologize uh, for the next 90 seconds of this because it's very direct. Then I remember that it's my sin that led Jesus to horrible torture, horrible torture and execution on the cross. My sin. Um, you, you may not know a lot about crucifixion and, and it's just, it's ghoulish and it's just very bad physically. Uh, the Romans knew their business when it came to torturing people. But what, one of the most horrible things about crucifixion is that when someone is nailed to a cross, just the nature of that is they have uh, the iron nails through the bones of the arm and the hand, through the feet. And the person is actually, the, the, the physical position of it actually causes people, they're, primary, they're suffocating, basically. They can't, you can't breathe in this position. And so the only way to get a breath is you've got to pull against the nails and push against the nails in your feet, pull against the nails in your arm, up to get a breath, and then you collapse back down. And add to this the the thing that wasn't necessarily normal of Jesus getting 39 lashes on his back. So he's rubbing his back up and down the wood of the cross and, and people are literally, they're pulling themselves up to get a breath and then they collapse. And when they don't have the strength to do that anymore, they suffocate. So the, the death on the cross is not necessarily from blood loss or from direct trauma. It's from suffocation because they just literally can't do it anymore. So every breath, every breath is an agony. And, and they, they, they feel like they can't do it anymore, but then they start to suffocate and just the, the human response of trying to live, they pull themselves into this. And it's just this awful, awful, slow, painful suffocation where you're literally fighting for every breath. And it's a losing, it's a losing fight. And the idea that it was my failing, my failing, that was the reason, that was the impetus for every one of those breaths that were filled with agony, that it was my actions and it was my decisions that participated directly in killing him, this innocent, this innocent person who was the best man who ever walked the earth. And, and I think about that interaction 
And what can I say? But those aren't the actions of a friend. I was his enemy. I was his enemy. And I betrayed him. I broke my relationship with him, with God, and I went my own way instead. And it cost him everything to undo that. It cost him a horrible price to undo it. So when God tells us to love our enemies, he's not kidding around. And he's not doing anything that he's not willing to do himself and really do. The price that he paid is so much higher than the price that he's asking us to pay. Uh, for even when I was separated from him, even when I was the direct cause of his suffering, God didn't cast me out. Instead, he paid the price himself. He laid down his life for me. And in the middle of that, in the very middle of that, he extended forgiveness to me. He extended grace to me when I didn't deserve it, when I was his enemy. And even more, he didn't just move me from enemy to friend. He moved me from enemy to family and actually adopted me in that process. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard said it this way. He said, God creates the universe out of nothing. And that's wonderful, you say. Yes, to be sure. But he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. Um, and this is, a, this is the heart of the gospel. So the, the first question is, can we read with good faith? Yes. Can we notice some things about this passage that are, that are interesting and helpful? Sure. Can we recreate a narrative? Yeah, I think the, the turning the other cheek gives us an in on this. And the passage of Micah gives us some insight into the nature of what loving our enemies is that lets us frame it in a different way. So the fourth question is this. What does this mean for us? Uh, I think it means a couple of things. One is this. We let this hard thing that God is asking us drive us back to him and to the heart of the gospel, to realize that, that loving our enemies is not this foreign idea that's just ridiculous. It's like, no, it's actually what he's done. It's actually the heart of our relationship with him. And so we come back to it and go, okay, yeah, I get it. Yes, we can participate in that as well. And, and the identity that we find in the gospel, we let that, we let that shine out in, in a new way. I'm reminded of a story I heard uh, literally this week uh, about there was a wealthy man who owned a, who owned a large business, and his best friend died, and he had a small boy as a child, and so the the man just kind of he didn't adopt him, but he he remained in his life, and he, and he was kind of a mentor and and kind of a kind of a helper, and he helped him. He actually set up a scholarship and put him through school. When he got out, he gave him a good job in his company and actually put him over a a a, a division. And the young man, unfortunately, was having some, some issues. He really got into drugs. He kind of burned through his own money in pursuit of that. And he actually started embezzling from the company to get more drugs. Uh, and this continued for some time. And, and it, it got to the point, as it often does, when you know he couldn't really cover it up anymore. And so things were coming to a head. Uh, he couldn't hide it any longer. His division was about to be audited. The audit was going to happen the next day, and he knew that this was going to come to light and this was going to be terrible. And he just didn't know how to deal with this. So he opened up the books, he's looking at the books and he's going, there's just no way out of this. I can't, there's no way to cover this up. There's no way, there's no way this is not going to come to light. And I've betrayed this guy who's, who's been so wonderful to me. And he's just, he's just beside himself. So he decides to kill himself instead of facing this, this horrible, this horrible betrayal. He gets a gun and he gets a bottle of scotch to kind of, you know, get a little bit drunk so he can have the courage to, to go through with this. But he drank enough that he got drunk and he passed out before he actually used the gun. So he's passed out with the gun and the scotch and the books and, and you know, it's just this this awful scene. Well, the wealthy man, the owner of the company, came to the office 
he, he comes in and he walks into this scene and he sees what's happening. He's going, oh my gosh, what in the world's going on? So he sees the the young man that he's helped. He's passed out. There's a bottle of scotch. There's a gun and there's this, there's this open ledger. He starts looking at the books and he realizes what's been happening. And instead of dealing with this directly, instead of waking him up, he does two things. He leaves two notes. And the first note is, he, he attaches it to the letter. It says, to the auditors, I will personally make up the difference for any missing funds. Right? So he's going he's gonna to be okay. And then he says a note to the young man, and he says, if you're ready to change, I'm ready to help, I'm ready to forgive, and I'm ready for us to write a new chapter. And he leaves and let, lets that play out. And the idea of this, it's justice and it's kindness. Uh, the funds are paid. <laughs> you know, it's like there, there, there's a reckoning, there's a reconciliation of the books that just has to happen. It does happen, but there's also this extraordinary kindness, this extraordinary forgiveness, this extraordinary love for someone that had been acting like an enemy. Who'd been certainly, if he was an enemy, he was playing the role. Right? He's embezzling from his company. He's abusing his relationship. He's doing these things. He set things in motion that would damage the wealthy man, and yet he's able to, to do something else. And when we when we look at stories like this, our natural tendency, and I think it's right that we do this, we identify with the young man, right? We we say, "Yep, I've screwed up as well. This is my relationship with God." We get it. We we hear the story of the prodigal son, and we say, "Yeah, I've been there. I've been in, in that kind of extreme place where I just don't feel like there's anything left." And I go back and I just throw myself at God's feet and say, "Not worthy to be." adopted can i just be you know is there any way that that you can forgive me and get out of this and god draws us into his embrace and we we identify with the son in the story we identify with the young man at some point at some point what love your enemies is about is god wants to draw us to a deeper place and he wants to draw us to become the other character in the story he wants us to be the wealthy man he wants us to be in a place where we can no kidding love our enemies he wants us to be the father in the prodigal son, where we can act in a way, where we can express God's love in a way where we can literally participate in it and draw other people into the gospel that we found. And it's this profound and wonderful thing to extend justice, but also to extend kindness to someone who needs it. To wear the shoes of the Father, literally, and love someone and restore someone, even if they've betrayed us. So when we engage an enemy or, we, or when an enemy engages us, I, we do we do a few things. Here's what I want you to do, okay? Uh, one, I want you to be angry. Be angry. Uh, it's an enemy after all. I mean, we can identify them as enemies and, and the anger might be justified. Don't ignore, the, don't ignore legitimate anger. Don't ignore the fact that there might actually be abuse going on. We can actually speak to that directly. Love doesn't ignore the reality of justice. It actually brings a cross into the story. But the second thing is, is forgive. Don't forget forgiveness. Don't forget the, the release and the kindness this brings. Don't, don't forget the loving nature of the second part of that because love also doesn't ignore the reality of kindness. Love brings in justice. It also brings in kindness and forgiveness and, and, and incredible power. The third thing is this. The way that we plug into our ability to do this, it's not a natural step. But we, we step into the fullness of our identity as a child of God. There's an incredible source of focus and remembrance and power and grace when we realize who we are. There's an incredible source of power there. And, and the fourth thing is to love your enemies, to love them. Because it turns out loving our enemies is literally the only way we will ever turn an enemy into a friend. So let's pray. 
Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for hard things. We thank you for things 